And so a new spirituality was accepted that gradually grew stronger and stronger with the years. It was the me, me, me centered spirituality, an anthropocentric centered me, my pleasure, what I want and now. And this is the spirituality that has taken over the church. Hey, my friends, I've got a real treat for you today. I want to introduce you to someone. I'm going to go through his bio. Yes, yes, yes. But I want to introduce you to someone who has the answer. The answer to our crisis in the church and in the world today. I know that's a big claim. And you're going to get to the same answer that you've heard a billion times before. You've got to pray. But wait, it's true, and everybody knows it's true, but there's a how involved. And this interview explains the how like I guarantee you, you have never heard before. And he gives the how. And you know, while I was talking with David Torkington, who is my guest, I had all sorts of questions. And I couldn't ask them because he answered everything. David Torkington is a spiritual theologian, author, lecturer, retreat guide, and broadcaster who specializes in prayer, Christian spirituality, and mystical theology. He's actually super famous. You know, for the past 50 years, he's been communicating to huge audiences all of his study on and it's really self-study because during David, he was 12 years as director of a London retreat and conference center, followed by his tenure as dean of studies at the National Catholic Radio and Television Center in London, where he gained meaningful insight into the decline of the moral and spiritual life in the church today. So he uh, lectured on mystical theology at the invitation of the Angelicum and the Dominican University in Rome. David has spent the rest of his life trying to inspire Catholics with the truth, which is to return without delay to the profound contemplative spirituality bequeathed to the early church by Jesus Christ himself and its development from St. Paul to St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. Now, he's a very celebrated author, 10 books on prayer and spiritual life that have been translated into 13 languages and sold more than 400,000 copies in numerous countries around the world. Um, right now, he's got a 10-part series out on Essentialist Press, and I'd very much encourage you to go to EssentialistPress.com uh, to take part in that. It's a free 10-part series. But for a taste of it, listen to this interview with David Torkington. Hello, LifeSite friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Each round is stamped on the back with an image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, we feature LifeSite's logo, surrounded by brilliant sunbursts and draped with olive branches, and each round commemorates LifeSite's 25 years of pro-life, pro-family reporting in America, Canada, and beyond. These one troy ounce rounds are 0.999 pure silver, and LifeSite has just under 10,000 in stock. They're beautiful, historic, and forever enshrining the most important American pro-life victory of a generation. This first edition LifeSite Silver Round is the perfect gift for yourself or anyone you love that collects precious metals and is passionately pro-life. And each purchase helps directly fund LifeSite's pro-life and pro-family mission. This is the first precious metals collectible of its kind that is directly supporting LifeSite's worldwide mission that you know, love, and trust. And now it can be yours while limited supplies last. Get your one troy ounce rounds of 99% pure silver today by clicking the first link below and celebrate life with all of us at LifeSite News. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So, 
you've already unpacked something for us that's very interesting because what I'd love to get to is your understanding of the church right now and particularly how um, you came to a new understanding of late of what's going on with the Francis papacy. Well, I was rather naive 30 years ago. Nobody, you see, I was a traveling speaker, lecturer all over the world. And, and at one stage, I was the um, Dean of Studies at the National Catholic Radio Television Center here in London. And I met so many people from all over the world. I was invited here, there and everywhere. And this is how I became aware of the sex abuse on a, an industrial scale in the church. Now, an ordinary parish priest wouldn't know what I knew because he didn't travel round. So, of course, that's how I found out about it. Even when lecturing, I say even when lecturing in Rome, because I was asked to go and lecture on mystical theology by the Angelicum. And it was there I met Dominicans from all over the world and found that, that what I had discovered elsewhere was everywhere, but nobody wanted to know. So the only thing I thought I could do, my parents were dead, my brothers were dead, but I did have a wider family. And the wider family um, that I belonged to simply couldn't believe it when I tried to tell them the truth. They simply couldn't believe it. And I had a very nice letter back saying, uh, uh, David, we're so sorry to hear about all this and can we help you? And reading between the lines, what they were actually saying was, can we send you a one-way ticket to the nearest funny farm? They couldn't believe it. And so I realized, I thought now I was free to speak out, but I wasn't free to speak out. That's why I decided to go back to deepening my own prayer life in the next 30 years. And during that time, to go back to study the um, Catholic mystical tradition from the very beginning. So that when people started to ask the question about prayer, I would have something, I would have a body of, um, of work to place before them. And in fact, I did that. And I was so involved in doing that, that I became rather naive. And this, this was my naivety. I believed rather like an alcoholic. They say that an alcoholic has to get so low that he realizes he is he becomes so disgusted with him or herself that they then turn their lives over to god and i thought that this would happen with the sexual abuse i thought they would become so disgusted with themselves that they would change turn their lives over to god and i would be there with the question that they were asking and the question i thought in my wildest imagination, they would be asking is, tell us how to get back to prayer, the deep prayer that you find in the early church. And so I was preparing the ground. But what I didn't realize was that far from being disgusted, they began to look, first they had a year of mercy. And this was the the trigger for me, because I was writing for, um, I, I've been writing a column all my life for Catholic newspapers in England, the Catholic Herald, the Universe, the uh, Message of St. Anthony, and so on and so forth. All of a sudden, it came to the, the year of mercy, and I couldn't make it out. Everybody had to be forgiven without even having to say they were sorry or look for forgiveness or go to confession. And it was this that alerted me to the fact that something was going on. Then more and more people began to tell me the unimaginable. And the unimaginable was this, that the very people I thought who were going to be so disgusted with themselves that they'd repent, they'd convert and keep repenting and turn back to God. On the contrary, they wanted to institutionalize their sinfulness. They wanted even to sacralize their sinfulness. And I couldn't believe that this was happening to begin with when people started to tell me. But gradually, drip, 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 
I began to realize through people like yourselves, perhaps more you, and I don't mean you personally, I mean you and your magnificent 70, I think it is, your magnificent 70, more than anybody else, were credible. So I had to believe what was going on. And of course, of course, the more I went into it, the more I realized the terrible state that we were in. And <laughs> therefore, I believed that I had now to come out of hiding, to come out of my Rip Van Winkle, had to come down from the mountain, if you like, and start to try to call people back to prayer, not just call people back to prayer in a vague, woolly sense, but to show them precisely and accurately what was the teaching of the New Testament on prayer? What was the biblical spirituality to which we must return? Because I also found out everywhere, people were saying, we've got to, I'm, I'm talking here about what I would call the remnant here. Let's call the remnant, you, you know what I mean. But they themselves are diverse with disagreements and so forth amongst themselves. We've got to stop quarreling and we've got to do what? Cardinal Burke told us to do, tells us to do, what Cardinal Muller tells us to do, what Archbishop Vigano tells us to do, what Bishop Strickland tells us to do, what Bishop Schneider tells us to do, and that is back to the person of Christ. He's the heart, the center of the church. He's the head of the mystical body, but not just to go there, because Christ is not static. He is as active now as he has ever been. And he is doing now what he did while he was on earth. And that is, he is continuing to offer himself whole with the, all who are in him. The great um, liturgist Joseph Jungmann said, Christ never prays alone, never prays alone, for he prays with the mystical body. Now we pray in, with, and through him to the Father. But what I'd really like to do, if you'll give me the time, instead of talking about just platitudes about prayer in general, I want to go back to the scriptures. I want to see, first of all, how Our Lady herself prayed, how she was taught to pray, and then, how she taught her son, Jesus Christ our Lord, how to pray. Because we have got to learn from him. He came not just to preach and tell us how to pray, but to show us by his example. Now, when Christ was about two or three years of age, uh, I've not had children, I don't really know when they begin to speak, but the moment our Lord was able to speak, Our Lady taught him a most important prayer that she herself had learned from Saint Joachim and from Saint Anne. And that prayer is called the Shema. And she taught this prayer to our blessed Lord as he was a child. Now, it's important to understand the inner nature of this prayer because this prayer gradually becomes Christianized, and we should be using it today. The prayer, the Shema, incorporates into it the first of, and the greatest of the commandments. Our Lord said, this is the greatest of the commandments, and it sums up all the others. And this prayer is to love God with your whole heart and with your whole mind, with your whole body and with your whole strength. Now, that is incorporated into the Shema that is said by the Jews first thing in the morning. It would have been said by Our Lady first thing in the morning. Now she teaches it to her son, Jesus Christ. So that the day ahead is therefore sacralized by using everything and everyone in that day to become 
the means through which we offer and sacrifice ourselves to God. Now, this is what Jesus did himself. When he was old enough, he went with St. Joseph to the synagogue. Three times a day they went. And if they couldn't go because they were working, they would stop at nine o'clock, at twelve o'clock, and three o'clock and say their shamer there. So their shamer was now said publicly with other Jews. When our Lord, of course, be began his public ministry, he now went to the synagogue with his disciples. They'd learned their shamer and they said their shamer together. Now, after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit had been sent, of course, Our Lady was there with them on that first Pentecost day. She also, with the apostles, continued to say the shamer. But now there was a difference, because now they said their shamer in, with, and through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now the prayer receives far greater power. This is their morning prayer. And they continue to go to the, to the, to the synagogue where they said their shame. But now they said it in with and through Christ, becoming a far more powerful prayer. Now, you let us see where I'm going. I think you see where I'm going. This, of course, is the prototype of our morning offering. This is the point I want to stress now. This is what I've got no newfangled ideas. I've got no new gimmicks to, to put over and to encourage people to participate. We've had enough of them. No, it's back to what we've forgotten. And we have forgotten it because we wouldn't be in this terrible state if we'd forgot, if we'd all of us together remembered our Christian shamer, our morning offering. Now, I was first taught this morning offering by my mother. My mother's father, my grandfather, died in 1946. I still remember him. I loved him. My grandfather was the last of the Lords of Spenithorne. His lineage goes right back to the Conqueror. They were recusants. This is the point I've tried to make. They were recusants, but he lost all his money. He no longer kept his title, his grand houses, the castle they owned in Yorkshire, the, 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 their estates. That was lost because everything had to be paid out because they were recusants. They refused to go to the Protestant church. And for our viewers, let me perhaps make this point. The, the word recusant comes from the Latin and it means those who refused. Je refuse. <laughs> Who was it who said that? Never mind. Uh, that's uh, that's irrelevant. So they refused to go to the parody of mass that was being said in the churches that had been re re uh, reconditioned from the from from the from the Catholics. And so I received this morning offering from my mother because. In recusant times, there were two great pillars. I know you were talking about pillars the other day. I'm going to introduce you to two different pillars, only slightly different. One of them was the pillar, which was the offering of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the sacred mysteries. After the Protestant Reformation, the Council of Trent wanted to emphasize more than ever the sacrificial nature of the, our Catholic faith, of our Catholic spirituality, and this was manifested in a dramatic way in the Tridentine Mass. But there was another pillar too, and that was the pillar of our sacrifice in, with, and through Christ that we made daily in the morning offering. And together now, we had the Tridentine Mass with the Tridentine spirituality. As our offerings were gradually offered together with Christ day after day, gradually they became as one. 
so that now we began to offer when we went to mass in with and through christ and in our offering we receive god's love and as we received god's love we began to contemplate the glory of god as his love came down to possess us now this is if you like that what i'm calling the tridentine spirituality it is not something which is just for um, those who happened, like myself, to have uh, descended from Catholic uh, recusants, because it is merely the mirror reflection of the spirituality of the early days of the church. That's all. It's just that in what I'm calling the Tridentine spirituality that satellites and orbits the, um, the Tridentine mass, it's just that it is, we see it in modern times in a way that we can understand perhaps more easily. Although all the time in the talks that I, I'm giving, uh, uh, we, we mentioned those, I think, before we started to speak, and maybe I'll mention them now. I have just completed uh, 10 uh, talks, thanks to Essentialist Press, that are free. And they are filling out what I'm talking about now. There are 10 part series of the Catholic traditional prayer from the beginning. And it is totally free, you'll be delighted to know. All you do is to go to Essentialist Press, sign up, and I'm actually up to number four, I think, at the moment. And please join us because we now want to take the offensive. And the offensive is through prayer, in, with, and through Christ. But I think it's essential that we pray together, not just at the same time, but within the same person, within the same person of Jesus Christ, and in the way that he learned to pray, to pray. In other words, to if we only go, um, you don't have to change anything. You're doing your work, your job, or anything. What I'm asking you to do is to sacralize it by going back to the way in which Jesus Christ our Lord sacralized his day by saying the shamer, our Christian shamer, that we make in, with, and through him is our morning offering. It's our morning offering. Now, when my mum first introduced me to it, she told me that by and it was so accurate, really, she said, by becoming, by saying your morning offering, you are becoming a little priest. You're doing what Rumpelstiltskin did. You're changing ordinary commonplace things in the day ahead. You're turning them into gold and you're doing it for God. Now, I don't know if you, you remember John Henry, but I'm sure you do. You probably give me chapter and verse of when, and I can't do that. But when uh, uh, Pope Benedict first went on the internet, he was approached by a young couple. And they said, Holy Father, we have a problem. Can you help us? And he said, um, well, yes, what is it? He said, our problem is this. Our problem is that we've got six children. We're very busy. We've got a lot to do. Teach us, please, or tell us how to pray. And what did he answer? I'm sure you remember. He said, say your morning offering. Not to change what you're doing, but to sacralize what you're doing as Jesus Christ our Lord did. Now, the curé de Ars said this. He said, Whatever you do, without if you do anything without offering it to God in your day, then you're wasting your time. You're wasting it. It is a waste. Waste not, want not, as my mother used to say. Don't waste anything, because every moment of every day is precious that you're doing. Just sacralize it now by using your morning offering and then transposing it, translating it, in such a way that everything becomes, becomes sacred. 
And then my mum would say, when we went to mass on Sunday morning, she would say, now you take the sacrifices that you've made in putting your morning offering into practice each day, the time you've given and the time you've given to moments of prayer throughout the day and making little acts of offering to God. Incidentally, I was talking to you before, I don't know whether the viewers have heard this, but in 1949, I became a rosary crusader. And um, when I asked the leader of the group, as he was called, what it was all about, he told me about Our Lady of Fatima. And the watchword was for everybody in that group was this, offer it up. Offer everything up. Remember St. Paul, whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, offer everything up to God through Christ. This is putting your morning offering into practice. But my mother said, now we're going to Mass, David, and you take all those offerings you made, all those sacrifices that you have made, and you offer them together in, with, and through our Lord Jesus Christ to receive from him to the measure in which you are giving no correction. You receive from far greater measure, far greater measure than we give. It always surpasses us. And then, therefore, you receive the grace, the strength from God to continue the next week making your morning offering and continuing to transpose your day in such a way that it becomes a sacred action until, and here I'm quoting Josef Jungmann, the great, great liturgist, perhaps the greatest of all the liturgists. He said, in such a way that your whole, <laughs> sorry, I'll explain why I'm laughing in a moment. In such a way, that your whole life becomes the Mass, the place where you are continually offering yourself through Christ to the Father. I'll explain why I'm laughing now. Because I wrote a book, one of the books I wrote was called, and I only finished it about four years ago, perhaps the main book that I've written to date, and there are many smaller books, but it was called The Primacy of Loving. And I sent it to uh, various um, publishers, but to a, a mainline publisher in the USA, perhaps one of the biggest, I won't mention who they are. Yes, loved it, paid me a down fee, etc. It was accepted. It went to their editor. The editor read it and said, I'm not publishing this unless you take this quotation out. And I said, well, what we, I, this was done up by email. He said that quotation. I said, but that's from Joseph Jungmann. I said that the whole lies become the man. He said, I'm not publishing that. And so it was an impasse because e even if I decided to take that quotation out, the whole of my book was about that. The whole of my life is about that. The whole of our life is about that. And so I withdrew it. I withdrew the book. And I didn't actually want to be associated with them anyway. And I thought, how sad. And I'm telling you this story because so many of us have forgotten the real depth and the real meaning of our Catholic faith at depth. We've forgotten what it means that we are here to share with our Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that our lives become the Mass. Now, this is what was called uh, originally the Tridentine spirituality after the Council of Trent. You had one pillar, the Tridentine Mass, in which Christ's offering was there. Two, you had the offering that we made every day through our Christian Shema as we tried to transform our whole day in, with, and through Christ. And as we did this, the spiritual life grows. And as we receive more and more grace from our offering each Sunday, gradually a spiritual dynamic takes place that unites us ever more closely with Christ. So that our loving, our offering, our giving mixes, mingles, merges with Christ and in, with, and through him is offered to the Father. 
where we receive his love and in receiving his love we contemplate the glory of his love now this is true contemplation now we're all called to this contemplation every single one of us our friend Garrigaud Lagrange up there uh, perhaps the greatest spiritual theologian uh, of modern times insisted that we're all called to contemplation and you know who the very first great contemplative was? The very first great contemplative Christian was? Don't answer, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It was our blessed lady on the first Pentecost day. Because on the first Pentecost day, when the other uh, apostles received the Holy Spirit with her, they still had a long way to go. They were on the way, they were on the way. But they still had a long way to go. Remember, it took St. Paul nearly 10 years of solitude, preparing first in the Arabian desert and then in Cilicia, as uh, uh, in what um, the great historian um, uh, Monsignor Philip Hughes talks about, his novitiate. It takes time. There is no such thing as instant sanctity. I believe in everything from instant coffee to instant resurrection, instant Sanctity, no, it is a slow process. But for Our Lady, the moment the Holy Spirit was sent, and here we see where we're going, the moment she received the Holy Spirit, because of her immaculate conception, there was no nothing, no barrier to the Holy Spirit. She was instantly transformed by the Holy Spirit, taken up when she prayed into Christ's contemplation of his Father. That's where we're going. This is how she shows us by her example where we're going. She is the first great Christian contemplative. That's where we are going. Now, says St. Thomas Aquinas, let's bring him in here. Well, the Dominicans get a bit, you know. When we are taken up into Christ, we are taken up into his contemplation of the Father and of the Father's love. And there we receive the fruits of contemplation, the infused virtues, the gifts, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So that then we come from our contemplation to share the fruits of contemplation with others. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas used those very famous words that are, are known not just to Dominicans, but throughout the church. He was summing up not just the calling of the Dominicans and Franciscans and the other religious orders of his day, he was summing up the vocation of the church, our vocation, when he said this. He said, contemplata ali istrahare. Our vocation is to learn how to contemplate and then to share the fruits of contemplation with others. We only receive those fruits as we are taken up into Christ, into his contemplation of his Father. And there we receive the fruits of contemplation. This is why, as the spiritual journey unfolds, and before the full union of ourselves with Christ that I'm talking about, as our, as our spirituality develops, a purification has to take place. Unlike things cannot be united together. Look, that is the love of God. This is us, this is where we begin, all locked up in ourselves. We want to be united with God, but this can only happen if there is a purification that opens us to be united with him. And this happens with our, and it all starts with our, morning offering and as we try to transpose that into the day now let me tell you one more little story to make my point my father he came from converts his parents were converts so he really didn't say much about the spiritual life to me left it more to my mum but i knew he read about the fathers of the church he was a great reader i know he read about the desert fathers and when he died we found in the back of his missal a quotation from john cassian 
And the quotation was from Abbot Isaac, who was teaching his monks how to pray. And he taught them how to take a short prayer, what we will call now a prayer of the heart, because it does come from our hearts. And to use it throughout the day, to turn to moments of need throughout the day, if you like to keep our morning offering on course. Now, my father wrote down the prayer that he used. And as soon as I tell you the prayer, you'll know that it is the prayer with which St. Benedict chose to open the divine office at every hour of the day. Oh God, come to my aid. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. This was his prayer of choice that he used throughout the day. When our Lord went to pray in the synagogue, I mentioned they prayed at the ninth, nine o'clock, midday, three in the afternoon. Why? Because that's when the priests made their offering in the temple. They wanted to identify it. Now they continue to do that after the resurrection but not to identify themselves with the old temple, but to identify themselves with the new temple, which was Christ. And so at nine o'clock, even if they couldn't go to the synagogue, they now reminded themselves of the new temple as it was being built, namely as at nine o'clock in the morning, Christ was being condemned to death. This is quite clear in the writings of the early fathers. The first Christians were told at nine o'clock, just pause for a moment to remember Christ as he was being condemned to death, as he was being receiving this scourge, the crowning of thorns. At 12 o'clock, remember, just remember, pause for a moment now and remember Christ being nailed to the cross at three in the afternoon. Remember his death upon the cross. Now, I mention this because I said to my father once as a little boy, Dad, what are those little marks on your watch for? There was a little sticker pointing to nine o'clock in the morning, another to midday, and another to three in the afternoon. He said, oh, it's to remind me to do something. And that's what it was reminding him to do. So what I'm trying to say is that the morning offering, therefore, can be kept on course, and we can be continually aware of what we are doing by throughout the day just pausing at key moments throughout the day, as the early Christians did, to remember Christ's passion, his dying on the cross, to keep our morning offering on course, and to use a little prayer, not necessarily, O oh God, come to our aid, it may be just, maybe the Jesus prayer, or the Jesus prayer in its simplest form as first devised by Abbot Macarius, which was simply to say, Jesus, 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 or whatever. My mum used to like to say, Jesus, mercy, Mary, help, whatever. But we need these little prayers of the heart, therefore, to keep us on track, to keep us offering the day so that that day becomes the mass, the place where we are continually offering ourselves with and in through Christ to the Father. Now, this was the heritage that I learned from, from, from my mum and from her recusant ancestors. Now, for nearly 100 years after the Protestant, the Council of Trent, you had the Tridentine Mass. Orbiting around it, you had this profound, mystical, I say mystical, and I use the word mystical a lot. Perhaps I better just explain it as an aside. When St. Paul told us about the great plan of God to share his life with us, to draw us through Christ upwards and into his life, to share in the three in one and two eternity, 
in the glory of their love. That is why he created us. St. Paul used a word to describe it. And you know, the word was a Greek word. It was the word mysterion, and it means hidden, secret, unseen. So anybody who is destined on their way, and remember, early Christianity was called the way, and Christ was the way. He was the way, the mystical way, because the word mystic comes from the, the Greek word mysterion, and it just means hidden, unseen. That's all, please, nothing esoteric. It just means hidden or unseen, because nobody can see what is happening. God can, nobody else can. So we enter into the mystic way, which is means entering into the mystical body of Christ and there to enter into his mystical action, into his mystical loving of the Father. This is the spirituality that begins then with a very simple morning offering, enabling it to completely transform our day. And gradually, with what we receive every time we go to Mass, the graces we receive to draw us ever more fully, ever more closely to Christ, into him, into his redeeming action, into his redeeming action to share in it. That's what we're called to do. Into his contemplation of the Father, there to receive the fruits of contemplation. Now, um, when you hear good news, there's often bad news, and I have some bad news now. For a hundred years after the Council of Trent, the Tridentine Mass was supreme with the Tridentine spirituality. Everything was, everything was going wonderfully. Great Christ, uh, Catholic spiritual writers see this period, this hundred years after the Council of Trent, as being as being the most profound, the most mystical since the early days of the Church. Now, I want to press this point home by quoting none other than. Monsignor Ronald Knox, in his book, Enthusiasm. This is what he has to say. We're talking now about the 1600s, the 17th century. Let me read from him. He writes uh, in chapter 11, page 232, the 17th century was a century of mystics. The doctrine of the interior life was far better publicized, developed in far greater detail than it had ever been in late medieval Germany, or for that matter, late medieval England. Bremont, in his history of the religious life in France, has traced unforgettably the progress of that movement in France. But Spain, too, the country of St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross had her mystics. Italy also had her mystics, who flourished under the aegis of the Vatican. Even the exiled church in England produced in Father Baker's Sancta Sophia a classic of the interior life. Now, added to Monsignor Ronald Knox, listen to these uh, other names. Tancre in his great work on the spiritual life agrees with him. Louis Cognier, the great French expert on 17th century European spirituality. Monsignor Philip Hughes. Pura in his spirituality of Catholic spiritual teaching. I could go on and on and on. This was a high point perhaps the highest point in Christian mystical spirituality. Now, I'm hoping uh, viewers uh, uh, listening will not be frightened anymore by the word mystical. It just means the way into the mysterion, into God's mystical plan for us in the mystic way, which is in and through the mystical body and the mystical action of Jesus. We're not talking of strange esoteric experiences. This is the way for all of us 
Garigou Lagrange, that's another big name. He insists that this is for all of us. But I'm afraid, John Henry, something terrible happened. And I hope we've got time for me just to touch on this because it explains where we are now. And nobody really knows. They put the blame, is it the Badding Council before, after the Badding Council? But it, it goes back here, I'm afraid, to where I'm coming now because at this particular point in the church's history, the bark of Peter was set now. The wind was in its sail. The Protestant Reformation was behind. It was a new age of mysticism. Of, um, no, I never use the word mysticism. That's phony. It's a word that is used for people who are looking for esoteric experiences for themselves. That's not mystical theology. Mystical theology is learning how the selfless, other-considering love for God, the self-same love with which he loves us, that has to be learned. That is taught in true mystical theology. Here, another quick distinction I want to throw in before I go further. Theology is the study of God and his relationship with his creation. It involves the mind. We learn it at school, we learn it at high school, at college, university. You become professors, you get your doctorates, your degrees. It's of the mind. Mystical theology is of the heart. It's of the heart. It is teaching people how to learn the selfless, unconditional loving with which God loves us, because only when we learn that form of loving can we be united with God himself. To begin with, we're cupboard lovers, but as the journey unfolds, we have to be learned to be selfless, learn the selfless, unconditional loving with which God loves us. But let me now continue. Something terrible happened. The bark of Peter was in full sail. The Protestant Reformation was behind and it was going forth into a glorious future when it hit a rock. It was demasted, stuck in the mud and could go no further. It hit a heresy, a wicked, heinous, pernicious heresy all the more heinous and pernicious, because I bet you nine out of ten theologians don't even know about it today, never mind ordinary Catholics, and yet it is responsible for what we are going through now in the church, and that's why I want to explain it briefly. It was a pseudo-mysticism called quietism. It was condemned by the church in the year 1687. Its propagator was a Spanish secular priest in Rome called Molino. And what he wanted to do, he wanted to attain for himself and for his followers what Saint Teresa of Avila called in her masterwork interior castle, the prayer of quiet. He wanted to attain it, but he wanted to bypass the purification described by St. John of the Cross in the dark night of the soul. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? But we can't. He thought he could. And so he developed this phony mysticism. And what he told everybody to do was nothing, nothing, nothing. You can't attain it, only God can give it. You can do nothing, nothing, nothing. So what do you do when you go to prayer? You sit there like a suet pudding waiting to be soaked in syrup, nothing. And if you have temptations or distractions, they come, what do you do? Nothing, only God can take them away. So what do you do? Nothing. And what did they do? They let them entertain, be entertained by these temptations, most particularly by the te sexual temptations. So when he was condemned, he and his followers were condemned of many, many cases of gross indecency. If you want to read about quietism, perhaps the expert is Ronald Knox in his book, Enthusiasm. He deals with the trial and what happened. Now, put yourself in the position of the church now. 
this they were sliding back into protestantism that was going underground it was it was growing underground and and in those days you see that they hadn't got the media as we've got the media it could take decades even hundreds of years to squash people keep citing uh, today um for instance um arianism do they not yes it was one of the greatest but at least it was out in the open everybody knew when what did the church do it beat a drum and the drum drum was christ is god christ is god and they all began to beat this drum and finally it was defeated but nobody knows about quietism and the effect it has because now realize that the Catholic Church saw they were being led back into Protestantism by this man. And it was spreading all over Europe, incidentally. Had tentacles everywhere. Not only that, it was leading into gross sexual sin. What does Our Lady say about that at Fatima? On a serious level. And when se serious sexual sin gets loose, it's like a drug. We should know about it because sadly, we see it at the highest level in the church today because this is where this is all leading so the church came in and it said stop every form of prayer that had the slightest whiff of quietism about it had to be stopped and stopped immediately over back in protestantism or we're moving into a terrible sexual revolution and so everything had to be stopped the works of St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila disappear to collect dust into clerical libraries, hardly to be used. Anything that spoke about being quiet or being still in prayer, anything that spoke about mystical theology, mystical theology now was out. That's why people sometimes cringe when you say mystical theology. Oh, that's not for me. But believe me mystical theology is about love your mystical theology begins when you consecrate your life to god in the early morning that's mystical theology you're saying i give you my heart and my mind and my love for this day this is mystical theology in practice but people don't like to use the word they're afraid of it is dangerous they coined a um they they, they coined um an aphorism and it was this mysticism begins in mist and ends in schism beware don't go near it even meditation now came under the microscope because they knew that meditation led to contemplation so all forms of prayer beyond purely the vocal was not safe it could be dangerous it had to be stopped now a great massive difference now took place in the whole emphasis of catholic spirituality up to this point the emphasis had been totally on god on the love of god in jesus christ our lord that was the total emphasis but now a new insidious emphasis came in the church it was already there because it began at the renaissance which was the real beginning of the modern world and it was now an anthropocentric spirituality because the credo of our catholic faith is i believe in god god is my salvation god will lead me god's wisdom will lead me to heaven but with them with anthropocentric spirituality it is i believe in god i believe in god's wisdom i believe that his wisdom will lead me to heaven on earth now, this spirituality was picked up in new orders, new activity-centered orders. If you read, for instance, the Ignatian spirituality, for instance, it is totally centered on how I can change myself. Yes, the grace of God is there. Yes, the grace of God is mentioned. But there is great emphasis for the first time now in Christian spirituality on me, 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 making my, my, myself holy. Now, this takes over after the condemnation of quietism.
this takes over. And now it is not centered on God in Jesus Christ. It is centered on me and it is centered on man's wisdom. And it receives a further shot in the arm from the enlightenment, which will only believe in what can be seen, what can be, what can be, what can be reasoned about. But love is not irrational. Love is super rational. And so now, even within the church, all the great renewals that have come since then have been scholastic, Thomistic renewals. I know because I was educated in Thomism in the 1950s. That's when I received my education. This was the latest renewal, but it was always back to the scholastics. Fine. If they'd remembered that St. Thomas Aquinas at the end of his life, through his great learning, had been learned being led to the fullness of God's love and experienced the love of God in such a way and was taken out of himself that he said, what I have written so far, so far compared with this is as straw. Because mystical theology, true mystical theology, leads to love. Now, all this was taken out, therefore, of Catholic spirituality. It was handed down through my family because they were living in exile and they were living in little houses where they were, well, some of them were very big houses actually, where, but where they were terrified because the Protestant pursuivants were hunting them down. And there they kept this faith, this faith that was handed on to me by my mother. But they lost all their money. But so what for the money? My grandfather might have died without a bean, but look what he left me. Look at the treasury that he left me. This profound spirituality, this profound, perhaps I could call it this profound Tridentine spirituality, which unfortunately disappeared. So you still have the Tridentine mass, but shorn of the spirituality that gave it so much life and vitality in those early days. So we've got to go back to this. So you see, um, John Hendry, I, 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 I'm not coming here with any newfangled ideas. I'm going back to the simple teaching of the gospel spirituality that Jesus Christ, our Lord, taught himself, lived himself, practiced himself, handed on to the apostles who handed on to the early church. It is a sacred spirituality that, that involves being united with Christ in the Eucharist in such a way, uh, yes, something is just coming into my mind that I must tell you to show just what this spirituality meant to those early Christians. Writing less than a hundred years after our Lord died upon the cross, Saint Justin in Rome writes, when at the end of the great Eucharistic prayer, in him, with him, through him, all honor and glory to all, the Amen was such that it nearly raised the roof. Why? They were not just saying Amen to a prayer, they were saying Amen to their lives. This was their life, offering themselves in, with and through Christ to God the Father. A hundred years later, two hundred years later, sorry, St. Jerome, who of course translated the, the Bible into what we know as the Vulgate, he said, when this great Amen was pronounced at the end of the great Eucharistic prayer, he said, it was like, I quote, a thunderclap resounding around the Basilica. Once again, it was not, it was Amen because their whole lives were offered to God the Father in, with, and through Christ. In this way, they were participating in his redemptive action and receiving the fruits of contemplation that were so disseminated that in such a brief period of time, a small group of Jewish heretics had transformed a Roman Empire into a Christian Empire. This was how they did it. And you know the base for it all? Where was the base? The base was the family. There weren't Dominicans and Franciscans, there weren't even Desert Fathers or Benedictines or Carthusians. It didn't exist. 
the family was the base. That was the base. Perhaps I better leave here because I'm 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 I'm, I'm in danger of uh, taking off because uh, I would like to say so much about the family that Christ consecrated when he went to the marriage feast at Cana. It is here that love is first learned. If you want to know where it where it is first learned, it is first learned here. Saint Bonaventure said later that the love of God or contemplation is first learned at the mother's breast. It was certainly for me, it was here that I received the strength, the love to spend my life traveling upon this mystic way that I'm trying to describe to you. It was her strength. This was the heritage I received from my recusant forefathers through her and more specifically through her love. But I've, I'm, I'm drawing the line here because I... I can go on further, but I wanted to go on thus far, John Henry, to show that the real devil, if you like, started with after the condemnation of quietism, when all forms of mystical theology were also condemned for fear they'd lead people back into Protestantism, for fear that they would lead people back into sexual sins. And so a new spirituality was accepted that gradually grew stronger and stronger with the years. It was the me, me, me centered spirituality and anthropocentric centered me, my pleasure, what I want and now. And this is the spirituality that has taken over the church. This is the, want, the, the wanton and woke wisdom now that they want to bring into our church. And it's an anthropocentric spirituality, and it begins in a very real way in the aftermath of quietism. It's back to prayer. It's back to mystical theology. And by mystical theology, I mean learning how to love again as God loves us. Beginning, it's all very simple, beginning now by rejuvenating our morning prayer and trying to use the prayer of the heart to keep it on track throughout the day. And then the sacrifice involved in this wonderful, profound, mystical spirituality being offered each time we go to Mass to receive this help and strength to continue on this way till we be united ever more deeply with Christ to receive through him the fruits of contemplation to do to the contemporary world what the fruits of contemplation did to that ancient pagan world. This is the way forward. And I believe now is the time to start again in this year before the devils meet again. Yes, I'm sorry, the devils meet again. There is devilry up top. There is a smell of sulfur. I'm sorry. It's not just that I disagree with what they say. It's what I disagree with those eminence gris who are at the top are up to even even many of the people who were called to rome and took part in this and don't know it all they know it all they are the master manipulators with their marxism and with their machiavellianism they know what's going on it's all worked out we've got to take up the offensive and let's get together now all of us reviting our spiritual life by taking and learning from Jesus Christ our Lord from the way he prayed, beginning therefore with the, Christ, the Christian Shema, our morning offering. David Dorkington, that is so absolutely beautiful. I could, um, all I want to do is encourage everyone to go to Essentialist Press and be able to hear more of you unpacking the beauty of the faith. It's hard to uh, describe. You've been given a great gift. And I'm so glad you share your gift with the church. A gift to be able to capture and explain this love of Christ, the way we should offer ourselves in, through, with Jesus Christ in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It does answer all the questions. And so I have none for you.
Can I say one? Can I say one last thing? Please. People may say, "We wish that we'd had a mother like your mother," but I've got news for you: you have. You have got a mother, and she was given to us on the cross. And if you want another simple summing up of everything that I was say, I am saying. It was given by Our Lady of Lourdes when she said to Bernadette, repent, 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 because that's all, we're, that's all we're being asked to do. Every moment of our day, keep turning back to God, keep turning back to God. And at Fatima, expanded, keep turning back to God, repent. And also, she said, pray, offer your sacrifice, and later, offer your sacrifice at mass and use the rosary to pray to unite yourself with the great mysteries of my son as they were lived out while he was upon this earth we all do have a mother amen amen david thank you so very much may god bless you and all of your awesome work thank you very much and God bless all of you, and we'll see you next time.